this family. Please meet the needs of hearts, needs that I can't even begin to know, but you know. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 18 this morning in our Bibles. If you're visiting with us today, I just want to say a word of welcome. Thanks so much for being with us here today at Cloverleaf Baptist. And uh, we know this is not the, the only church in Mobile that's preaching the Bible this morning. Uh, but I'm, I'm so honored that you have chosen to be with us. And if there's anything we can do to be a blessing or a help, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. And uh, we'd love to get to know you more. And if you have questions about our church, we'd love to answer those as well. Well, nicknames can be a lot of fun. How many of you have or had a nickname at some point in your life? Okay, wow, we've got quite a few people with nicknames. I'm sure some of those will be kind of fun to find out about, maybe ones you don't have anymore. Um, they can be a lot of fun. You, you go through history, there is Pepin the Short, right? Okay, I wonder how he got that name. It's probably pretty obvious. Uh, or the great communicator, Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, uh, or Stonewall Jackson. Did you know his first name was not actually Stonewall? I don't know. It was actually Thomas something or other. But he, there's Jackson standing like a stone wall. Frederick the Wise. He did not get that nickname by being an idiot, right? He, Frederick the Wise. He was a wise ruler. Or how about this one? Bloody Mary. Uh, not the name of an of a alcoholic beverage, but that's the name of a, of a queen of England who went off and killed a bunch of Protestants because she was trying to bring the country of England back into Catholicism. Bloody Mary. Or Ivan the Terrible. Ooh, that's kind of a, a scary one. Or Alexander the Great. Okay, we've got these nicknames through history, maybe nicknames you had growing up, and there's often a story behind those nicknames, right? There's often an interesting story uh, that, that is probably entertaining to retell as you, you got the nickname that you have. Uh, well, as we come to Genesis 18, I think we get the backstory for one of the nicknames we have in the, the Bible. Now, the nickname does not appear in this chapter, but it appears in a couple of other places, Second Chronicles and in James. We find out that Abraham, the guy we've been talking about over recent months, uh, gained this nickname, the Friend of God. That's an extraordinary nickname to get. Abraham, the Friend of God. Now, we already saw God change his name from Abram to Abraham, giving him that name change, that permanent reminder of God's promises. But he got this nickname, Abraham, the Friend of God. Like David, the man after God's own heart. Right, we know that name, or, or, or Saul, who becomes Paul. Uh, Abraham, the friend of God. Friendship is an extraordinary thing. Uh, in fact, there's been some reports that have come out this year where studies have been, un, been done that have found out that friendship, especially among men, is on the decline. I think you know, the, the pandemic and, and, and lockdowns and social media have really made it harder for people to connect and to have real friendships. There's more and more men who, can, who say, yeah, no, I don't have a single uh, male friendship with, with another guy where we're, we're close. Like, that's a sad thing. A sad thing to go through life without, without true friendship. You know, what makes a, a friendship? Yeah, friendship. What, what makes a friendship? Well, you may say, well, there's common interests. You know, we, we kind of unite around. We like the same things. Well, that'll only get you so far. Um, I, think, I think friendship often will begin with that, but then it'll go deeper to where you begin to talk. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, a friend is someone you talk to and you say, wait, I thought I was the only one. And you find out there's someone else who thinks the same way that you do and you, and you unite in your heart. I think we think of friendship, we think about mutual affection. It's not just a one-way street, but it's a two-way street, mutual affection. There's almost a sense of equality in a friendship, right? Where you're like, okay, it's not someone who I, I have authority over, but it's someone that, that I, I have a relationship with and we can speak into each other's lives. A friend is someone who you can trust. 
right? You might talk to some people, you think they're friends, and then things kind of come back through the grapevine, and you're like, oh, I thought they were my friend, and, and, and they're not. Friend is often someone you'll have the same aims in life with. You Maybe in different places, but you're, you're, you're striving for the same thing. Like a Christian friendship, you've got another person who's like, I want to be like Jesus, and I want to help you and your walk to be like Jesus. Friendship is going to be marked by companionship. And I think probably the bottom of friendship, that's what we think. Someone you can spend time with, someone you can share your life with, companionship. It's going to be marked by communication, right? You're going to, you're going to talk with each other. Um, now, we all have friends that are, are such good friendships that you can go six, eight months without talking, and then you pick right up back up where you left off. And those are wonderful friendships that you have just as closeness, but there's still communication, there's still talking, there's dialogue, there's conversation that occurs. There is, there is confidence, right? You can bring someone into your confidence where you can share what is important to you. You can share your dreams and your thoughts and your struggles with a friend. And, and they won't look at you and be like, man, you're an idiot. But no, they're going to be like, yeah, I understand that and I want to help you with that. And of course, a friendship is going to be marked by commitment. There's going to be a commitment where, remember back when you were a kid, you're like, let's be best friends. And people used to have those friendship necklaces and friendship bracelets. And we're going to be best friends forever. And then like six months later, you're like, I hate that person. You know, that's middle school for you. But friendship, there's going to be commitment that's going to last more than six months or someone who likes the same girl. or what. It's going to be more meaningful than that. I think Genesis 18 illustrates why Abraham is called the friend of God. And it's one thing for Abraham to say that God is my friend, right? Like, yeah, God and I are on good terms. God is my friend. It's another thing altogether for God to say that Abraham is my friend. Right? Those are two different realities. I heard a youth pastor tell me one time, uh, you know, I want the, the, the kids to feel like I'm their friend, right? Like, I want to feel that closeness, but they're not my friends, right? We're not, like, equals here. Here's God bringing Abraham into his, into his confidence, God bringing Abraham into this relationship. Now, the creator-creation divide is never going to be done away with. Abraham is always going to be a creature. He's always going to be a sinner, and God's always going to be God. But here's God bringing him into this amazing relationship where he shares his heart with Abraham. We think about those features of a genuine friendship, a companionship and communication and commitment and confidence. All of these come out in, in Genesis 18. And here's the point I want for us. Oh, that's pretty cool that Abraham had that relationship with God. Here's the reality. For all of us as God's children, all of us who are in God's family, where there's a metaphor of closeness, God, God is saying, I want to draw you in to genuine friendship. Friendship. Now, not a friendship where we're flippant with God and be like, yeah, God's my buddy, but genuine friendship that's reverent and respectful, but genuine friendship, genuine relationship with the Creator. Let's jump in here. Genesis 18, look in verse 1. And the Lord appeared unto him, the him being Abraham, in the plains or at the oaks of Mamre. Okay, so that's kind of the heading for the chapter. That's kind of the, the narrator is giving us this backstory. It's like when you're reading a story, the omniscient narrator is telling you what is going on. Now, Abraham does not know that the Lord is about to appear to him. So we know this, but Abraham doesn't. And he sat in the, tent, in the tent door in the heat of the day. So it's around lunchtime. It's hot. Abraham's done his morning chores. Here he is hanging out in the tent door, getting maybe a siesta. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood opposite him, by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I'll fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that, ye shall pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. 
And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. Coming to this, this first scene in the chapter, by the way, we'll walk through uh, all four scenes in this chapter, each of them illustrating another dimension of Abraham's friendship with God. But here God shows up to Abraham's tent. Abraham does not know it, though he will eventually, by the, by the time we get to verse 15, he's going to know that, that one of these three visitors is Yahweh in the flesh. But what does this show to us about Abraham's friendship? First off, we see the first reality of this friendship is God reveals his presence to Abraham. This is extraordinary that the creator of the universe would condescend to reveal himself as a man to Abraham. It says that he saw three men. Okay, one of them is Yahweh. The other two are angels accompanying him. They're going to go on in chapter 19 to, to bring judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is astounding. God showing up in human form, right? kind of a prefigure of the incarnation. As we think about Abraham's friendship with God, I mentioned some features of friendship in the introduction. We see that the companionship idea, the relationship idea, if you want to jot that off to the side with, with presence and companionship, it starts off with this visitation. Abraham's finished the morning's chores. He's you know, fed the sheep, fed the cows. He's done what he does every day. It's now hot. And by the way, most cultures in the world where it's hot, they take a siesta, which I'm like, that is a great idea. I love the afternoon nap, but I don't really get it very often. When I was in seminary, I set up my schedule in such a way where I had no afternoon classes. I'd pack the morning with classes and work, and then I'd go back to my dorm and sleep for a couple of hours. And when I met Rachel, she thought that was crazy. Like, you get a nap every day. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome, right? I think God wired our bodies for that, but that's just me. So here's Abraham. He's in the tent door. Maybe he's nodding off. Picture the Middle East. It's hot. The sun is overhead. It's just that the, the cows are laying down in the shade. The, the campsite has just died down because it's, it's hot. It's miserable. All the servants are leaning up against palm trees. Just get their afternoon siesta before it cools back down again and you can get back out and do your work. Maybe Abraham nodded off and then wakes up with a start and there's three guys just boom, they're right there. Like, where did they come from? Now, hindsight being 2020, I think Abraham would put it together. They, they just appeared. But it looks like three guys who are on a journey. And here's Yahweh. Abraham does not know that it is Yahweh. He doesn't know that it is Jehovah. Here's these two angels and he lifts up his eyes, verse 2, and he sees them. By the way, I don't believe that the three men represents the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, just believe that the, 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 this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The Father cannot be seen. The Spirit uh, is, is a spirit by definition. The Son is the, the physical representation of the Godhead. And then these two angels who are accompanying him. So notice how he responds. In spite of these people showing up unannounced, sort of inopportune appearance. They just show up at Abraham's doorstep, so to speak. Notice how he reacts, verse 2. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them. By the way, Abraham is 99 years old. But here he is running. That shows sort of exuberance that he's sort of like, oh my goodness, there's a need and I want to meet this need. Here's three guys on a journey. I'm going to extend hospitality to them. So this old man leaps up and he runs warmly to his unannounced guests. This may seem a little odd to us, but in the ancient Near East, and still in the Middle East today, this idea of hospitality is a really, really important part of the culture. Uh, it's not like today where it's like, oh, thanks for coming today, we'll see you later. The idea here is if someone shows up, you have sort of a sacred duty to provide for them and to protect them. Um, a few years ago, I read a book called uh, Lone Survivor um, about Marcus, yeah, Marcus Luttrell. He was a, a Navy SEAL in Afghanistan, and his team of 
Navy SEALs, they got, they got ambushed by the Taliban, just like three guys got ambushed and the Taliban were up on the hill and they, they killed everyone on the team. He got blown off a cliff by an RPG and he wakes up with like a broken femur and just totally torn up and he crawls like this incredible distance and finds a friendly village and the, the village there takes him in. And there's a custom in Afghanistan, very much like what's going on here, is once you bring in a guest, you protect them. And even though they weren't necessarily allied with the United States, they had made that sort of sacred commitment by bringing him into their house. They were going to protect him, and they actually fought to protect him from the Taliban as they came to try to capture him. Incredible story. This idea of hospitality, right, still today in the uh, Middle East, in those kinds of cultures, being more than just, hey, I'll invite you over for dinner tonight and we'll put on a big spread, but sacred duty to protect. That's what Abraham is doing, extending hospitality. But even given Middle Eastern hospitality, Abraham's response is excessively generous. Okay, this is above and beyond. Look now in verse 2. He ran to meet them and he bowed himself toward the ground. Like, Abraham's a pretty important guy. They, you know, if these were just ordinary travelers, they ought to be bowing to him. Now, hindsight being 2020, given that this is Jehovah, this is exactly the right thing to do. This is the same word that could be translated worship. Uh, so here's God showing up for dinner unannounced, Abraham responding perfectly without even knowing that it's God. Verse 3, if I found favor, he calls them my Lord. Uh, by the way, something that's happening in verses 3 and 4, he's switching between using the singular and the plural. So he's like, yeah, one of these guys is really important. Yeah, there's three of them, but there's one who's obviously more important than the other. My Lord, if now I found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from, my ser- from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under a tree. So he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm begging for the opportunity. He uses that word, I pray you. It's entirely appropriate, given that who the identity of these visitors is, right, to, to treat them with such deference and respect and reverence. She's like, I'm going to bring water. I'm going to wash your feet. Verse 5, I'll fetch a morsel of bread, a piece of bread. Let me grab you a little piece of bread. Let me grab you a little something to eat and comfort your hearts. Now, this is like when, when Grandma invites you over and be like, we're going to get you a snack, right? I mean, food everywhere. That, that's the kind of the idea here is I'll just get you a little something here before you go, and you're, you're going away stuffed full of food. You guys understand how that works. A piece of bread is sort of this generous understatement because what Abraham does is provides an absolute feast for these guys. Calls calls the leader, my lord. He bows down humbly in worship. He graciously offers the best hospitality he can. He is unwittingly giving the respect due to Yahweh. So he invites them to, to stay. Entirely appropriate considering this is the creator of the universe, doing all the things that a a Middle Eastern host would do, washing the feet from a long journey, providing food, providing water, providing rest. And they accept his offer. Uh, Verse 5, so do as thou hast said. So verse 6, Abraham springs into action. The little sleepy camp where everybody was nodding off under palm trees suddenly awakens to life. So Abraham is running around. He goes and wakes Sarah up, goes in verse 6 into the tent and said, make ready quickly. Notice the word quickly, three measures of fine meal. Verse 7, Abraham ran under the herd and fetched a calf and gave it to a young man, and he hasted to dress it. So we get these words, hasted and running. He's doing things quickly and with speed and with enthusiasm, with energy. This is not just, well, I guess it's my duty. I've got to do this. It's the custom. But Abraham is doing this from his heart. The kind of guy that Abraham was was not just someone who, who bowed to custom because it was nice. He's not just doing the southern hospitality thing because he's living in the south. He's doing this as a genuinely hospitable kind of guy, a genuinely sacrificial generous act of kindness. So servants are now scurrying back and forth across the campsite. Sarah is summoned to help. Abraham is active. 
The piece of bread offered in verse 5 quickly grows into a lavish Thanksgiving-style feast. Okay, we kind of read over this, but uh, verse 6, make ready three measures of fine meal. Okay, what is three measures? Like three cups? Like what's going on here? No, let me give you some, uh, some st- statistics here. That is six gallons of flour. All right? So go home and be like, hey, hey, honey, can you throw them together? You know, we're inviting Pastor Sam over for lunch. Six gallons of flour, make a little bread for him. Like, what are we doing, trying to feed an army? Like, there's going to be Abraham, Sarah, and these three guys. This is a meal for five people, and I have no idea how much bread you can make with six gallons of flour. Some of you who bake can tell me after church. That's a lot of bread. Then he goes on in verse 6, make the cakes on the hearth. Verse 7, he takes a calf tender and good. He gets an entire cow, right? He slaughters an entire cow. Now, some of you all, like, go out hunting, and you shoot a deer, and you fill your freezer. Like, that's not one meal. This is over-the-top lavishness, right? This is not just a, normally a goat would suffice. In other stories in the Old Testament, you've got visitors, go kill a goat. A goat is the right amount of food to feed, you know, five, six people. Killing an entire cow, like the nicest one in the herd, that, that, this, is a, this is absolutely lavish. Then it says he, uh, they, they get, um, verse 7, they gave it to the young man, he dressed it. So one of the servants now is slaughtering, preparing the meal. That would have taken time. And he took butter. That would be a kind of a, a form of yogurt. Um, even Middle Eastern food today where you get yogurts and cheeses and milk and the calf that he had dressed. And he set it before them. And then verse 8, he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. So here's Abraham sort of hovering nearby as a very attentive waiter. He's like the really good waiter who's like, oh, refill the drink. Do you need anything? Let me go get you, get you everything that you need. Going out of his way. All this, of course, is revealing his friendship with God. Revealing this relationship. God esteems Abraham, loves Abraham to such a degree that God's like, we're going to go show up to Abraham's place and have a meal. By the way, this is the only place in the entire Bible where Yahweh has a meal with people. Of course, until the incarnation of Christ. Where the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten full of grace and truth. But to share a meal is about entering into covenant with someone. This is special. This is more than just, hey, let's hit Cracker Barrel after church today. But this is about a close relationship, table fellowship, that we are, Abraham and God, entering into sort of the closest kind of relationship possible. Now, could you imagine today if Jesus came to church? Um, That would be incredible in and of itself. And then Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to your house for lunch today. Like, what kind of preparations would you make if you knew that Jesus were coming to your house for lunch, right? You, you would go out of the way. The house would be spotless. You'd have the best meal prepared. Even if your favorite, like, I don't know, sports person, like Nick Saban's like, hey, I'm going to go have lunch with you. Man, this is going to be awesome. We're going to go above and beyond and the best steaks on the grill. We're going to make this awesome. If you're not a, maybe if you're an Auburn fan, that wouldn't be a good thing. You may be like, oh, slip a little something into, but um, <laughs> you, you, someone who you really respect coming over, you would go above and beyond to welcome them. Here is the God of the universe. Abraham does not even know it. One of the shows I like to watch from time to time is Undercover Boss, right, where the CEO puts on, like, a horrible wig, and they go in there, and, like, Dairy Queen, they're trying, to make, they're, they're, they're trying to make the ice creams or whatever, and then they realize it's a really tough job, and they give people a bunch of money. And then every, you know, afterwards, they're like, hey, I'm really the boss, and people are like, man, I'm so glad that I, I worked hard. You know, here's the CEO. Well, this is like an episode of Undercover Creator. God shows them, is like, how does Abraham treat me if I come unannounced? In fact, Hebrews 13, jump over to Hebrews 13, gives us a divine commentary on this episode. I think this is pretty cool. Hebrews 13, and notice the application that the writer of Hebrews gives to us. Hebrews 13, verse 1. 
Let brotherly love continue. So keep, hey, all y'all, keep loving each other. Keep building relationships with each other. Keep treating each other as family. In verse 2, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, uh, to show love and to welcome strangers. In other words, to show hospitality. So someone shows up, they're a stranger, they're new, they're a visitor, they're someone you've never met. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is referring directly to Genesis 18. Here's Abraham. He has angels and he has got himself over for dinner and he doesn't even know it. But Abraham was so much in the habit of extending hospitality that he didn't have to suddenly change gears when he was like, I think these are angels. I'm reminded of the word that Jesus says in Matthew 25, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it for me. So I would go, I'd pull out all the stops for Jesus if he came over for lunch. But if you're not actually inviting anybody over for lunch today, why would that be any different, right? The point here is a call to you and me to practice hospitality. Uh, If Jesus were to show up, we would go above and beyond. There's a place in 2 John where he says, when the missionaries come along, support them in a manner worthy of God. If Jesus were coming to our church to raise mission support, we would be like everything. Help Jesus out on his mission trip. He says, do the same for legitimate, good, godly missionaries. Uh, so while we, none of us will have Jesus himself come to our house for dinner, we will have his representatives. We will have his people. We will have his children. We will have those who he is seeking after. And so we ought to be people who are marked by hospitality and love. Our hospitality is important. Those strangers that you meet in Walmart are important. Do you realize that everybody that you meet, as C.S. Lewis reminded us, is going to be either an everlasting terror or, or an everlasting delight. Do you realize that the person that you're frustrated with while you're sitting in traffic going through the tunnel is someone who will spend eternity somewhere, someone who bears the image of God? The people that you blast in the comment section under those articles on Facebook, you call names, are image bearers. Those people who high, hold high political office and we're like, oh, we know their motives, they're, they're horrible, bad people, are image bearers who will spend eternity somewhere. When God shows up here in in Genesis 18, he comes sort of in an undercover kind of way. And Abraham was so much in the habit of showing this kind of affection and love and hospitality to people, he treated him exactly as he should. It's astounding, isn't it? So Genesis 18, the only place in the Old Testament where God eats a meal with a human. What about Gideon? No, God like fried that meal, right? He makes his dinner and burns it to, to nothing to show that he's God. But here's the point. God showing up, having this relationship, this companionship, his presence with Abraham. This is what friendship with God is all about. Friendship with God is not, oh, yeah, God and I are like buddies. We're pals. This is awesome. We're just going to hang out. But, I mean, it's about a real relationship with God's presence in our lives. We look at this story, we can think of no greater privilege than having God over for a meal. But here's the amazing thing. You and I have that opportunity every single day to break the bread of life and to hear from our Creator. And to enter into his presence and have a relationship with him. Man, this would be cool to have to... Okay, are you getting into the word? Are you enjoying the relationship that you have through Christ? Do you have open conversations with your creator? Do you feast on his word? Do you nourish yourself in his glory? What a friendship Abraham has, right? This companionship, this presence of God. But here's a second facet of friendship that we see revealed in Genesis 18. Back to Genesis 18. Not only does God reveal his presence to Abraham, the companionship idea of friendship, but here God reveals his power to Abraham, and here he is now communicating. Beginning in verse 9, they have a message for Abraham. So again, this is genuine friendship. It's going to involve communication and talking and sharing things going on in our lives and uh, who we are. Verse 9, 
God is going to reveal himself to Abraham. By the way, as J.I. Packer pointed out, when you have God and a creator, the initiation is always going to come from the greater. Okay? If God does not reveal himself to Abraham, Abraham doesn't know God. That's how it works with knowing God. None of us pry our way into his presence or just sort of figure him out. He's got to show us who he is. And here's God showing who he is to Abraham, inviting him in to see his divine character. Verse 9. So dinner's now over. Verse 9. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. You can almost see Abraham being like over there in the tent, pointing that way, nodding that way. And he said, Notice it's not they said, now it's he said, now it is Yahweh speaking. I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. But he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. So God's reiterating to Abraham what he had told him in Genesis 17. God had told him in Genesis 17, you're going to have a son, you and Sarah. It's not going to be someone you adopt, or it's not going to be this Ishmael thing, but it's going to be you and Sarah are going to have a son. He's going to come here next year. His name's going to be Isaac. Now, apparently, I don't think Abraham told Sarah all of this. I think he's sort of mulling it over, and then next thing we know, these angels show up, and they're saying the same message. Now, verse 9, I think at that instant, Abraham realized these guys are, are, are divine. God had given Sarah a new name in the previous chapter. Um, so here's three guys who have never met Sarah, and they know her name. All right, that's, that's quite astounding. They say, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So here's Sarah sitting behind them in the tent. They've never met her. They don't know her name, except they do. At that point, I think Abraham's like, mm, this, this, seems, this seems like a little bit more than three travelers who are just passing by. Verse 10, here's the message. I will certainly return. So this is intensive in the Hebrew. Returning, I will return. It's like most definitely without any question, I'm, I'm promising this. According to the time of life, next spring is the idea. So next year, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. This is astounding. This is astounding. Now this message, even though Sarah's not sitting around the table having the meal, this is given for her benefit. They know she's within earshot, even though she's out of sight. She's still able to kind of eavesdrop what's going on, right? She's sort of respectfully over there while the men have their conversation, but she's listening into everything, right? That, that's kind of how she rolls. And, and, and so verse 10, we begin to get these, these little aside comments. The end of verse 10, Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. And then just a reminder, in case we have somehow forgotten, Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. Okay, he's 99, she is 90. They, they, they are gotten quite old. And even with their, with their extended lifespan, they're well past the age of having children. This is... This is Completely out of the question. It ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. She is beyond the time of having children and being able to conceive. They are no longer spring chickens. Now, in her younger years, she was physically unable to have children, right? There was some reason God did not see fit to give her children. But now that she's old, it's definitely out of the question. She's completely given up hope. Any hope she had earlier in her life that she would have kids has now been totally obliterated with the passage of time. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself. So she's not even laughing like, ha-ha, slapping her knee in the tent where everyone can hear her. But this is just a, 
a chuckle inside me. I'm like, there's no way this is going to happen. After I am waxed old, I am worn out. I'm like a, an old garment that is threadbare and there's holes in it. That's, that's how that word is used in the Old Testament of a garment that's worn out. I'm, I'm old. I'm wrinkled. I can't see anymore. Stuff's not working. Everything hurts when I get up. It's, 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 it's pop, crackle, and snap when I get out of bed in the mornings. Like, am I really going to have a child and then go through childbirth and have a kid and actually survive that? Uh, will I have pleasure, my, old, uh, my Lord being old also? Here she calls Abraham her husband, my Lord, um, which First Peter picks up on. She has this tremendous respect for her husband. But she's like, yeah, Abraham's not exactly a young guy either, right? Like, I don't see how this is going to work from a physical standpoint. And from a physical standpoint, she's absolutely right. 99-year-old people don't have kids, right? That's just not what, what happens. So she's laughing. Back in Genesis 17, of course, we saw last week, Abraham laughed. Now, he literally fell over laughing when God told him this. She is a little more restrained where she laughs with him herself. And I don't think this is the laughter of, of pride where like, oh, God, you really don't know. But this is the laughter of sort of hopelessness. I, I, I think that's the right way to read this. Um, her laughter, I think, is understandable. And for her, this seems like a cruel joke. I'm not going to get my hopes up again. I've hoped over and over and over again that maybe this time would would be different. She's given up hope. The story, if the story ended there, it'd be like, okay, there's God giving a promise that just seems outlandish, and someone's like, mm, not seeing that happen. But notice how God answers here. And now we get sort of the God pulling back the veil a little bit for us to see. This is who I am. Remember, Abraham does not have the rest of the Bible to tell him who God is. Remember, this is Genesis, right? There's no other books of the Bible written at this point. So you think, well, Abraham should have known that God knows all things, so he's all-powerful. No, God is revealing this to Abraham through his actions. This is God saying, I'm, I'm communicating to you, Abraham. I'm showing you who I am as a friend does with another friend. I'm, I'm letting you in. So verse 13, the Lord said unto Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I really bear a child when I'm old? Right? He sort of summarizes Sarah's thoughts, and God gently rebukes her. Okay, this is not, Sarah, you're horrible heathen. Leave the camp and never come back. But this is God gently rebuking Sarah. Now, notice verse 13. For the first time in the narrative, the speaker is re regarded as the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, the Hebrew name Yahweh, the I am. He says, why did Sarah laugh? Now, if there was any question in Abraham's mind who the visitor was, that's been taken away. The visitor not only knows the name of someone he never met, he knows the words of someone he cannot hear, because she's behind him, right? She's behind him in the tent where he can't hear what she's saying. And she's having an internal dialogue, so he knows her thoughts. Um, it'd be kind of creepy if you're, like, thinking something and someone's like, hey, why are you thinking that? And go, uh, that's what moms and teachers and, and people like that are able to do. Why did Sarah laugh? He asks. Now, what do we see about God? We see that he is a God who is omniscient. He is all-knowing. We know that. Oh, yeah, God knows everything. We saying, who can teach the one who knows all things? Yet how often do we try? Like, hey, God, I know you know, know, know all things, but let me kind of inform you and advise you and give you some advice as to how you should run the universe because you don't seem to be doing a very good job. Is your prayer life like that? I don't, wouldn't say that, but is that the attitude sometimes in your prayers? Or do you really believe that God is omniscient? God has never had to learn anything because he knows all things. There's never been a point where new information came to God that he's like, well, I have to take that into consideration. Like, man, people are responding this way, so I need to change my plans. God doesn't do plan B's or plan W's or plan Y's. No, he, he has a plan A that works out perfectly. He knows all things. 
So you come in here this morning, you're like, man, there's stuff going on in my life. I, I came in, popped into Cloverleaf Baptist Church today. But my heart is just smitten with grief. And everybody thinks everything's okay, but I, I am not okay this morning. Maybe you say, I'm wrestling with doubts. Oh, I look like I really believe, and I sang the hymns today, but I've got real questions. I'm wrestling with, is this true, and can God do these things? Is, is the Bible real, and is Christianity, is Jesus the only way? God, God knows that. He hears your silent groans. He grasps your unbelief. He comprehends your hopelessness. He knows all things completely at all times. From eternity, he has known all there is to know, and there's never a point where he came to know those things. It's just mind-blowing, the knowledge and the wisdom and the infinitude of our God. That's astounding. Do you think of God in those terms? I encourage you, go pick up a book like A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a short little book. It just goes through different attributes of God. chapter on the omniscience of God is just, it's just beautiful. And each chapter is just like four or five pages. pages. It's not an 800-page volume that will destroy you. But read through things like that and read Psalms like Psalm 139 and meditate on the omniscience of God. He's revealing as a friend, this is who I am, Abraham. I, I know all things. Verse 14, though, he goes a step further. Is anything too hard for the Lord? If we were to sort of uh, summarize all of verses 1 to 15, there it is. God showing Abraham, his friend, his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Is anything too hard? Is anything too wonderful? Is anything too great for God to do? And, of course, the answer is no. Nothing is too difficult for God. You say, well, that's just one verse in the Bible. How do I know that that's just, you know, God's not sort of overstating his case here? It shows up again in Jeremiah 32, those verses that that, uh, Ryan read, um, almost identical language in Jeremiah 32. Let me just remind you of that. Jeremiah 32 and verse 17. Here's Jeremiah praying, and he says, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there's nothing too hard for thee. So the omnipotence of God rests on the doctrine of creation. That God is powerful enough to speak the world into existence and to make all things as they are. So if that's true, well, then nothing is too hard for God. If, 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 he, can, if he can create the universe, yeah, there, there's no problem. Once you concede that, you shouldn't have any problem with miracles, right? I don't know about Christianity, people rising from the dead. Okay, if you believe God created everything, then you shouldn't have trouble with that. By the way, if you don't believe that God created everything, your other option is that the world created itself, which is ludicrous. Um, if I were to stand up here and say this iPad um, assembled itself, you'd be like, yeah, you're an idiot, right? Well, to come along and say the world created itself and the human eye just kind of like appeared on its own, like, that doesn't make any sense. So God's power seen in creation. In verse 18, thou showest loving kindness unto thousands. Notice how this flows out of God's omnipotent. He can do all things. And one of the most inconceivable things that God can do is to show grace to sinners. You see that in verse 18 of Jeremiah 32? You show grace, loving kindness to thousands. As something else God does, you recompense the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. God judges sin. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open unto all the ways of the sons of men to give every one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God is all powerful and God's revealing this to Abraham through the birth of Isaac. When God responds to Jeremiah in verse 27, he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And he's talking, of course, in the context of judging Judah and then restoring them. But that's not the last time we see that idea in Scripture. We now go over to Luke chapter 1. 
I had Michael read the Magnificat after, uh, after this particular account where Mary is responding to the, the, the message from God that she, a virgin, is going to have a child. You're like, that doesn't happen. Uh, well, look here in, in Luke 1 and verse 37. God's, Angel Gabriel has given her the message. She says in verse 34, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man, right? I'm not intimate with anyone. How can I have a child? The angel said in verse 35, the Holy Ghost will come upon thee. In verse 37, for with God nothing shall be impossible. So the same God who gives this promise to Abraham says the same word to Jeremiah, speaks the same word to Mary. The entire doctrine of Christianity rests on God being able to do all things. Having a virgin have a child, and that child, of course, is Jesus Christ, and through him we are saved. One other verse, Matthew 19. Here Jesus is uh, dealing with the rich young ruler, Matthew 19. And uh, the rich young ruler comes along and says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you need to sell everything you have. You need to essentially repent of your covetousness and your materialism, and you need to put your trust in me. You need to follow me. And then Jesus comes along and he says this in verse 23. Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, now some people try to be like, oh, it's a gate in Jerusalem. And no, 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 like camels, we're literally talking about a needle and we're talking about a camel. The point here is rich people cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, now notice how the disciples respond. The disciples heard it. They were exceedingly amazed saying, who then can be saved? Okay, if rich people who were regarded in that world were the recipients of divine favor can't get saved, then there's no hope for the rest of us. And that's exactly the point. It is impossible for one sinner, it is impossible for you and me who are sinners to be saved. There's literally no human way possible for us to achieve the divine standard of perfection. There is no way for us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. There are no, there's no way for us to attain heaven on our own. It is impossible. Right? If you think, oh, I'm a good person. No, Jesus says it's impossible for anyone to be saved. Except verse 26. And Jesus beheld them. So he kind of lets that sink in in the shock. Kind of, kind of smacked them upside the head like a two by four. And he said unto them, with men, this is impossible. Just to make it clear, salvation is impossible from a human standpoint. Forgiveness of sins, impossible from a human standpoint. Giving yourself a heart transplant, impossible from a human standpoint. But with God, all things are possible. So our salvation itself, our forgiveness, our hope of heaven rests on God being an omnipotent God who can save sinners, who can transform their hearts, who can give life to the spiritually dead, who can show grace and mercy to those who have forfeited it. An amazing teaching throughout Scripture. So we go back to Genesis 18. Back to Genesis 18. This friendship God has with Abraham and Abraham has with God, God is revealing. Hey, this is who I am, Abraham. That's what friends do. They bring you into sort of that relationship and say, this is what I'm like. This is my character. I'm going to let you, let you see this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Think about what a genuine friendship entails. It's going to involve relationship, companionship, and that seen here, God showing up to Abraham's tent for dinner. It's going to be seen in communication. God repeating this message about having a son and then revealing his glory. God revealing his power to Abraham. But third, we're going to see God in his friendship with Abraham revealing his plans to Abraham. Verse 16 now, we have a transition. It transitions away from the blessings through 
Isaac to the judgment that's going to come on Sodom and Gomorrah in the next chapter. God's going to reveal his plans to Abraham. And you think about a friendship. A friend is often one who will bring you into their confidence to be like, hey, listen, I'm thinking about changing jobs. Kind of wrestling with us, praying about this. What do, you, what do you think? A friend is someone that can be like, talk those things over and have those conversations about, hey, I, I met this girl and I think she's amazing. We're, 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 I want to marry her. And a friend, someone you talk to about those things. Friend, you bring into their confidence. Here we see this astounding section of scripture where God brings Abraham, a mere mortal, into his confidence. Look in verse 16. And the men arose up from thence. Okay, they finished dinner. They finished telling Abraham and Sarah, like, you're going to have a child. God's able to do anything. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. Again, good host. You don't just say, all right, have a good day. But you would actually walk with them down the road and take them on their journey and then part some way down the road. It'd be akin in our culture to being like you stand out in the driveway and you wave goodbye as people pull out. In that culture, you would actually go walk with them down the road. Now, verse 17, we have a... Uh, Sort of a divine soliloquy, right? Soliloquy, you're reading Shakespeare, and the, one of the actors is giving a speech that everyone in the audience hears, but the other, the other characters on stage, we understand they don't really know what they're saying. So to be or not to be is a dialogue where the one character in whatever it is, Hamlet, is giving the, his inward thoughts of what he is thinking, what he's wrestling with. Um, here we get a divine soliloquy where God is sort of saying to the audience and to the other angels, but Abraham's not hearing this. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, even rendered, for I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. So God's like, I'm about to do something. Shall I let Abraham know what I'm about to do? By the way, God is under no obligation to reveal to Abraham or to any of us what his plans are. Uh, he's God, and he doesn't need our consultation or our approval or our permission to do anything. So this is God saying, I'm going to make the deliberate choice to bring Abraham into my confidence. For Abraham, my friend, the one with whom I'm going to share my heart and my plans. Verse 20. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Now God is speaking to Abraham. And because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So the other two angels then move on to Sodom and Gomorrah, where chapter 19, they will, will, will then judge that, those particular cities. So God's revealing his plans to Abraham. And if you want one of those other words I was using, confidence, this is the confidence aspect of friendship. Shall I hide the thing from Abraham, uh, which I am about to do? Jesus in John 15 says, okay, servants don't know what their masters do. Master tells them to do something, they do it. He says, but friends know what their master knows what the other guy is doing. He says, you are my friends. I've told you what my plans are. Here's God saying, I'm treating Abraham as a friend because I'm going to let him in on the plan that I have. That's amazing, right? Shall I, shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? Verse 17. Now, here's the reasons. God's saying, here's, here's the reasons why I'm going to do this. Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. That's what God had promised. So he's saying, it's because of my promises, I'm going to reveal my plans to Abraham. Because I've promised that he'd become a great nation who's going to bring blessing to the earth. Because of my plan to redeem sinners through the seed of Abraham, hey, he's an important part of my plan for the nations. Why not bring him in on this? But another reason, verse 19, for I know him. Uh, and the sense here is, I have come to know him. I have entered into a relationship. I have even chosen him. Uh, that, that term is often re references 
God setting his love upon a person or a people. Uh, it means that in Jeremiah 1 and Amos 3, verse 2, Hosea 13, verse 5. It's more that God's like, yeah, I know some things about Abraham. But is that God has entered into this relationship with Abraham. Now, why has God chosen Abraham? I know him so that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. Here's what God is saying. I've, I've chosen Abraham so that through him there's going to be a nation raised up that will represent me to the world. And ultimately through that nation the Messiah will come through whom sinners will be saved. Now, how's that going to happen? Abraham is going to teach his children. There's going to be this, 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 this chain of divine truth that will be passed from Abraham to his descendants, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah on down to, to, to Moses and then through Moses. There's going to be this teaching of divine truth that there will be this nation that will imperfectly keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment. So I've chosen Abraham for this purpose. To put it simply, I've chosen Abraham so, so he will glorify me. Right? I've chosen Abraham so he would glorify me. That the Lord, again, in verse, end of verse 90, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which, which he has spoken of him. So God's like, I've got this promise that through Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to fulfill that promise by choosing Abraham. Abraham will teach his children, and then as a result, they'll be able to be that blessing to the nations. That's, that's the sense of that. Here's the point. Abraham is special in the plans of God. So I've already made, made him an important part of my plan. If he's going to teach his children, I, I think it's wise for me to tell him what I'm about to do so he can see what genuine justice and judgment looks like. By the way, the idea of justice and judgment, those are the key thoughts for the rest of the chapter. Will the judge of all the earth do right? God is about to exhibit what divine justice looks like in judging Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham needs to know that this is deliberate on God's part. This is not God just like, oh, you know what, I've had enough of those guys, let's wipe them out. No, this is a deliberate, patient action on God's part. If he's going to teach his children what genuine justice looks like, he needs to see genuine justice in action. So God's equipping Abraham for this purpose. So in verse 20, God says to Abraham, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grievous. He's simply stating the facts. Abraham knew this. Abraham knew that Sodom and Gomorrah were infamously evil and wicked. So after the divine soliloquy, God now verbally announces to Abraham what his plan is. The facts are very clear. Sodom is wicked. Their wickedness is well known. And we often, of course, associate Sodom's sin with their sexual perversion, which is on display the next chapter. The angels show up, and the men of the city want to rape the angels. It's messed up, right? There's just sexual perversion run amok through the city, and to, to, just to a, a mind-boggling degree. But he uses this word here, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah. The outcry. This term in scripture is often used when people are oppressed and abused and they scream out in pain and agony or they cry out to God for justice. So Israel is in Egypt and they cried out to God and God heard their cry. Uh, the word is often used in those contexts. What this is talking about is one of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah that we often overlook. And this is oppression and injustice. They, they had, yes, sexual immorality that was rampant, but also violence and oppression. They oppressed the people around them. They oppressed the weak, those who could not do anything about it. Ezekiel 16 and verse 49 actually explicitly tells us why God wiped Sodom and Gomorrah out. Jump over there to Ezekiel chapter 16 with me. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter 16. In verse 49, God's comparing the people of Judah to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16 and verse 49. 
says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. He says, You're like Sodom. What was it? Pride. What was it? Fullness of bread. Abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. So that's referencing their sexual sin. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. So it wasn't just the immorality, it was the injustice. I think sometimes as conservative Christians, we're really good at calling out immorality, but injustice, we're like, ah, well, you know, who cares about that? The, the outcry back in Genesis 18 is referring to the injustice, and then the sin underlying it is what's causing it. And God's like, I know that. And in verse 21, back in Genesis 18, he says, I'm going to go down and see if it's really going on. He said, now, why on earth is God going to go down? I thought we just established that God's omniscient. Why does he need to go and investigate? This is done not for God's benefit, but for Abraham's benefit. We're going to see at the end of the chapter, Abraham is going to plead with God to spare the city. And Abraham needs to know that God's justice is deliberate. God's judgment is deserved. God's not just like, I'm going to go wipe out a whole city because I have nothing better to do today. By the way, that's how critics of the Bible will present God as this vindictive, angry God. And just kind of, no, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, they had been oppressing people for, for decades. They had been committing horrible rebellion and abuse and, and all of these things going on for a long time. And God's going to say, I'm going to go in there with these two angels, and we're going to just confirm that that is the fact. And, of course, what I mentioned in chapter 19, that is the case, that the way the men of Sodom treat those angels confirms that the city is ripe for divine judgment. There's nobody righteous there in the city. Annihilating an entire region of cities seems incredibly drastic. But God saying, I'm going to go down and see what's going on, is confirming God's actions are just. Now, here's the point. This friendship God has with Abraham, God is letting Abraham in on his plans. He is showing Abraham, is taking Abraham into his confidence. In a sense, we have the same thing. God has revealed his plans to us in Scripture. And he invites us to take up and read and to understand. Now, finally, I want to just conclude with this very briefly. Verses 23 to 33. We'll see God revealing his patience to Abraham, and this is God's commitment to Abraham. Abraham drew near verse 23 and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. Be it far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then will I spare all the place for their sakes. Now, Abraham will go on from verses 27 to 33, and he'll say, okay, what about 45, or 40, or 30, or 20, or 10? What is Abraham doing there? Some people will be like, Abraham's trying to haggle with God and talk God out of judging the city. What Abraham is doing is plumbing the depths of divine justice. He asks a question in verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He says, God... If there's 50 righteous people, they will be annihilated as well with the wicked. Would a just God really do that? And God's like, no, I would not destroy the city if there were 50 or even 10 righteous people. What is God revealing here? He's revealing his patience to Abraham. On one level, he's revealing his patience with Abraham because Abraham's premise is right in one way. God is just. He does not do unjust things. But in another sense, he thinks that, well, Good people get good things, bad people get bad things in this life. That is not always true. You can read the story of Job to find that out. Now, in eternity, God does judge the wicked. He does reward the righteous. But Abraham's premise is not entirely right. But God is patient with Abraham, and he indulges his, uh, his question. Even look how Abraham uh, speaks as he goes on. 
Verse 27, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Abraham is, is recognizing, I'm, I'm maybe being a little bold here and asking this question, God, yet God is patient with his friend. Verse 30, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. For adventure, there shall be 30. And verse 31, uh, Behold, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Per adventure, there shall be 20. And then verse 32, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. So we see God's patience with Abraham as he asks these questions. Recognizing that the judge of all the earth will do right. God is patient even as Abraham persists in interceding and pleading for the city. But here's what I want you to see as we conclude this morning. Notice God's patience, his grace that is readily available for the city of Sodom. This is an incredibly wicked city. This is a city that we would all agree God should judge and annihilate the city. You know, we wouldn't really want to believe in a God who is unjust. A God who's like, yeah, Hitler gets the same thing as the rest of y'all. We'd be like, no, that doesn't seem right. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be okay with that. What is astounding, rather, is that God is ready to spare the city for the sake of ten righteous people. That is astounding. He's saying, I am willing to delay judgment on a city that deserves it if there are just ten righteous people in the midst of that city. He's a God of patience and a God of grace, a God who had persisted patiently with this wicked city for years and years and years, and eventually divine patience ended and justice was done. Right? But God is a patient God. Romans 2 says, don't think that the patience of God is God excusing sin. Know that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. What is all the more astounding is God's patience with us. By the way, some people were like, well, Abraham should have kept on going until he got God down to one person to spare the city. God's the one who ends the conversation, not Abraham. Okay, God had already determined he's going to judge the city. He's going to rescue Lot because of Abraham's prayers. Okay, Lot is the one righteous guy in the whole city. But here's the thing that's scary to, for you and me to consider is God is a God of justice. I believe it was Benjamin Franklin who says, I tremble for my country when I remember that God is just. Right? Uh, we ought to tremble for our country when we realize that God is just. He hears the silent screams of babies that are ripped apart in their mother's womb. He sees the invisible acts of abuse that happen behind closed doors every day. He hears the cries of the oppressed. He will act. And his judgment will surely fall one day on this world. It will one day fall on all who do not know God. In fact, we're okay with God showing justice to the really bad people. But listen to this, Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which means your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness. We have sinned against God in a million ways. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his justice. We deserve the fate of Sodom. Even if our sin is not as pronounced as theirs, it is as serious and deserving as judgment as theirs. And our only hope is to have a... True and better Abraham who can intercede for us. Abraham's intercession saved the life of Lot. We need someone who can stand between the, the wrath that we deserve and us and bear it in our place so that God's mercy can be unleashed. And that person, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He took on him all of our sin, all of our violence, all of our shame, all of our rebellion, all of our apathy, all of our idolatry, our deception, our immorality, our perversion, and he even took on our punishment at the cross. He bore the wrath we deserve. He satisfied the justice of God and he unleashed the mercy of God. Say, so if you could find a righteous person, in a sense, it's a foolish question because there is an unrighteous, no, not one, except the Lord Jesus Christ. The only truly righteous person in history was swept away in the flood of divine wrath. 
so that we could be forgiven and made friends with God. What is friendship with God? It's a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. It is enjoying that relationship in the, in the conversations and in the commitment and in the presence of our creator. He summons us to be his friends. Now you're here today, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you're actually his enemy. And the call to you is to lay down your arms and come to him in repentance and faith. For those who have, he, he invites you to come still nearer. He invites you into his presence. He, he wants to reveal his power to you. He wants to reveal his plans and his, his patience and his character. So do you enjoy that kind of relationship with God? Would it be said of you and me that we are friends of God? Father, thank you for your word. Would you apply it to our hearts?